The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Um, returning to the last question you had about morality, um, you find this is a Sutta Nipata verse 705. As I am, so are they. As they are, so am I. Comparing himself with others, he should not kill or cause to kill. And that is really another way of saying, do unto others as you would have them do to yourself. And this is um, a verse that um, goes back to the same text that Andrea mentioned, um, one of the earliest strata within the Pali Canon. Now, I'm not suggesting that the, you know, the, the, the Christianity then borrowed this Buddhist idea. I think, uh, as someone else pointed out to me in a discussion afterwards, you find uh, Rabbi Hillel in the Judaic, Jew, Jewish tradition saying something very similar before Jesus as well. So it's likely that um, he could just as well have got the idea from there. But I think also, as human cultures evolve and people begin to experience to, to explore and develop their religious and moral and social thinking uh, and become more self-aware, and we are social, empathetic creatures, then I think these sorts of ideas are likely to pop up in different contexts anyway. But in any case, you can point to how um, both in Buddhism, in Christianity, even in Judaism, you can have uh, a foundational uh, precept for uh, doing good, as it were, uh, based on an understanding of the world that has no need to appeal to the moral authority of God. Um, we're going to break in about half an hour for lunch, but before we do that, I'd just like to um, to consider some some uh, uh, some of the texts that I will then develop on. Uh, this afternoon and read you out some passages. I've referred to the Buddhist first sermon, which is usually called the Dhamma Chaka Pavatna Sutta, the discourse on turning the wheel of Dhamma, although that's not actually the title given to it in the earliest sources. I think that's a, a rather later title. But nonetheless, it is considered to be how the Buddha first presented his teaching. But if you look at this text, and I'm going to read it out to you uh, before we break, um, I think it's very unlikely that the Buddha delivered this discourse and it was recorded verbatim. Uh-uh, I don't think so. That's, that's asking a little bit too much. It, it's one of these, um, it's a wonderful text. Um, it's extremely concise. In English, it can be printed on one page. In fact, there's a version of it that I've translated in the um, appendix to my new book. This is my new book. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, but it's one of those texts that, that bears repeated reading. And that, I think, is what accords it the classic of, of the status of a classical text. Something that, um, on the surface, might seem quite simple and straightforward, 
But the more you reflect on it, the more you reread it, the more you discover within it. It's an extraordinary document, I feel. And although it may be the case that it, it, it will, I think it's almost certainly the case that it wasn't spoken verbatim as soon as the Buddha got to the deer park and he just sort of delivered it. It has the appearance of a text that has been worked and reworked and refined. And I suspect it was probably, uh, um, it may not have reached its final form for some time later than the first, uh, sorry, the time of the first teaching. But it does seem to have been a very central uh, uh, statement that defines, in, in a, I think in a very clear way, uh, what the Buddha's teaching was primarily about. Now, I'm just going to, uh, before I read that text, I'd like to read another passage which comes from the second volume of the Sangyutta Nikaya, or the Connected Discourses of the Buddha. And it is a parable. Suppose, monks, a man wandering through a forest would see an ancient path traveled upon by people in the past. He would follow it and see an ancient city that had been inhabited by people in the past with parks, groves, ponds and ramparts, a delightful place. Then the man would inform the king or a royal minister, Sire, know that while wandering through the forest I saw an ancient path. I followed it and came to an ancient city. Renovate that city, Sire. Then the king or royal minister would renovate the city and sometime later it would become successful and prosperous, filled with people, attained to growth and expansion. So too, monks, I saw the ancient path travelled by the Buddhas of the past. And what is that ancient path? It is just this noble eightfold path. Right view, or however we translate it, appropriate seeing, appropriate thinking, speaking, acting, working, making efforts, practicing mindfulness, practicing concentration. I followed that path, and by doing so, I have directly known suffering, its origin, its cessation, and the Eightfold Path. Now, I think there are a number of things that are, are striking about this, this parable. I had been aware of it for a long time. In fact, the idea of the Buddha recognizing that what he was teaching was not just his own personal understanding, but is something that goes back to the Buddhas of the past. In other words, there's something um, universal, something that's not tied to him particularly, but seems to be something that when people wake up, they discover this. But I'd always thought, I'd always heard it only in terms of discovering the path in the forest. And it was only relatively recently, a couple of years ago, when I went back, I tried to track the source of it in the canon that I found that the metaphor wasn't just about the path. In fact, the path was rather secondary. The metaphor was about the city. And 
the path is significant and meaningful only because it leads to a city that can then be restored. That's the primary metaphor, the city. And the path refers to the Eightfold Path and the city refers to the Four Noble Truths. Now, I find that a bit odd, at least in terms of much of what is uh, taught about um, the, the Eightfold Path being the path that leads to the ending of suffering. That is how it is classically defined. The Noble Eightfold Path that leads to the end of Dukkha. But here, the path does not lead to the ending of Dukkha, at least not explicitly, but it leads to the Four Noble Truths. And the fourth of the Four Noble Truths is the Eightfold Path that leads to the Four Noble Truths. The fourth of which is the Eightfold Path, which leads to the Four Noble Truths. So there are two things happening here. One is that... um, uh, the, uh, the, the path leads to the four truths that are compared to the rebuilding of a city which is very much an image of, of some creating something in this world. A place, as he, as he says, a, a city that would become successful and prosperous, well populated, attained to growth and expansion a delightful place with parks, groves, ponds and ramparts. That seems to be the destination of the Eightfold Path, another kind of city, a city that might have existed in the past, in previous eras, previous Buddhas have shown it, and now it's time to somehow restore that city. But what does it mean for the Four Noble Truths to be, um, uh, for the city, what does it mean for the city to be a metaphor for the Four Noble Truths? It's easy to understand why the path in the forest could be a metaphor for the Eightfold Path. That doesn't require a huge leap of the imagination. But what does it mean for this city, prosperous, full of people, delightful, ponds and ramparts, to be a metaphor for the Four Noble Truths? It seems to me to suggest that the Four Noble Truths are seen, at least in this passage, as a template for another kind of civilization. Remember the word city, or in Latin civitas, is the root of our word civilization. That a city is uh, a place where human beings uh, come together in great numbers, and in doing so, are able to um, divide their labors and their skills and their abilities um, in such a way that a diversity of, um, of, of, of actions and tasks can be performed, that by division of labor, um, people can specialize in, for example, philosophy or religious thought or moral thought, or the development of culture, of the arts, and so forth and so on, which is what a civilization or what a city enables. Something that is not going to happen in a purely rural agrarian environment, where there is insufficient population, 
and there is um, um, a necessity for every able-bodied person to work the land, to be held by the cycle of seasons, and very little opportunity for achieving much beyond uh, that in terms of human culture and, and development. Now, another reason I think this, this metaphor is, is, is significant because historically, the Buddha was born at a time when the very first cities were being built in the Indian subcontinent, uh, particularly on the Gangetic Plain. That the Buddha existed in India in what is now, I mean, the, the recent scholarly dating of the Buddha is, has been moved forward a bit to 480 BCE to 400. In other words, the 5th century BC, which makes him an exact contemporary of Socrates. But what had happened, what, what was significant um, in the economy of the Gangetic Plain at that period was that the um, agrarian economy had, in the period before the Buddha, reached a sufficient uh, uh, development that it created an economic surplus. In other words, it produced more than was needed for the mere survival of the community. And once you have surplus in an economy, you have um, money or wealth that can be used for non-productive purposes. And what happens, uh, what ha happened in uh, India at this time, were two things. First, it enabled um, uh, rulers to employ standing armies. In other words, able-bodied men who did not have to go to work in the fields every day, but who could be trained in the arts of war. And that is a necessary precondition for the establishment of empire. In other words, for the conquest of territories and the establishment of a centralized power. And the centralized power will then um, base itself in what we call a city. And until, that economic conditions are, until those economic conditions are met, you can't have cities. Cities are built on surplus and cities are built on power. The other, uh, uh, the other thing that is made possible by uh, surplus uh, production is that men and women um, are able to renounce their ties to day-to-day -day labor and pursue what we would nowadays call a life of the mind. And this is exactly what was happening around the Buddha's time. That uh, men and women were leaving the household life, as it is still called today, and subsisting on alms, begging. They were bhikkhu means beggar. Bhikkhuni means woman beggar. Someone who um, lives a simple life, uh, does not have dependence, does not have great costs, um, is free to wander where they will, to different communities, different centers, and is supported in that life by um, the arms that are available because there is sufficient surplus in the community to provide them. So it's not only that this surplus leads to different uh, political and, uh, and social structures, 
but it also leads to the possibility of pursuing questions, philosophical or religious, whatever you call them, that are not um, something uh, which is going to produce you know, wealth. Um, the, the, the society now has the luxury, as it were, of addressing questions such as, why, what is human life all about? Why am I born only to die? What is the meaning of all this? Now, if you're working in the fields all day, you might, when you're having your cup of tea after having you know, ploughed the field, think about this for a few minutes, but you're not going to be able to dedicate your life to such questions. When you have a community of, of wandering mendicants, of which the early Buddhist community was simply one, one example, um, you have a, a, the beginnings of what we would call philosophy and religion. So it's significant that uh, the Buddha, uh, Siddhartha Gautama, uh, was born at this very crucial moment in the evolution of Indian society. And I don't think it's accidental that he would choose a metaphor of the building of a city as a metaphor for what he was doing. In other words, I do feel that um, he saw his teaching as um, an integral part of the evolution of this new kind of society in India. So there's one dimension, therefore, of his teaching, which is not about simply a path to achieve the cessation of rebirth, no longer being tied to the cycle of birth and death, but is concerned with establishing a new kind of order in the world, a new kind of civitas. So that's one example. Now, I'm aware that this parable only appears once, and it's not a dominant thread that is developed in the canon. Nonetheless, it sheds light, I feel, on the structure of the first sermon. Because in the first sermon, we find um, a very similar um, development in the way that the text is laid out. The Buddha starts the first sermon... I'll read the whole, in the end, I'll read the whole, whole thing in a minute. But first of all, I want to break it down into its, um, into its main structural elements. The first thing the Buddha declares in the first sermon is, I have awoken to a middle path. It is a path that generates vision and awareness. It has eight branches, and he lists the eightfold path. So the middle path, which is the first thing the Buddha declares, is the noble eightfold path. So in other words, we start, as we do in the parable of the city, with the finding of the path. The Buddha then cuts, um, without transition, straight into the Four Noble Truths. The Four Noble Truths are then listed, and I'll read those out in a minute. So again we have the sense, if we take the, the structure of this text to be the evolution of a certain series of ideas leading to a conclusion, which is the Buddha's definition of his awakening that I read out at the beginning of the morning, we have the Eightfold Path, the Four Noble Truths, then the next section concerns how the Buddha's understanding of how the Four Noble Truths are to be practiced. It's all very well to list them, what do you do about that? 
Then he enumerates the specific tasks that are appropriate to each truth. And each task is to be recognized, performed, and accomplished. And this, this is where we get the 12 aspects of the Four Noble Truths. The recognition of suffering, the, the recognition that suffering is to be fully known, the performance of the fully knowing of it, and the accomplishment of that knowing. So three phases in each truth, four truths, three times four equals 12. That's how we get to the 12. So having um, then presented the tasks that are appropriate to each truth, the Buddha then concludes the text with um, his, his, the definition of his awakening. It was only when my knowledge and vision was entirely clear about the 12 aspects of these four truths I did, uh, that I did uh, claim to have a peerless awakening in this world. And then he says, the freedom of my mind is unshakable, this is the last birth, there will be no more repetitive existence. And then there's the conclusion, the very, very conclusion, uh, one of his followers, a man called Anya Kondanya, um, understood it, got it. And then you had the first stream entrant, the first one who had actually entered the path itself. So I think there is a clear development of ideas, a progression from one step to the next, to the next, to the next, which also mirrors or, let's say, uh, uh, spells out or illustrates, let's say, uh, the fundamental idea in Buddhism of dependent origination. That um, uh, dependent origination doesn't, doesn't just refer to the 12 links which you're perhaps familiar with, but it refers to a kind of underlying principle. When this is, that arises. When this is not, that does not arise. And that's how in the Arya Pariyasana Sutta, the Noble Quest, the Buddha describes what he understood under the Bodhi tree. But in that text, he doesn't um, then go on to deliver the four truths. It's only when he gets to the deer park that he translates that principle into a form of life. And I, and I would claim that this, uh, for the, 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 the first sermon is basically a sequence of conditions and if, of, of causes and effects. The path is the cause. That leads to the Four Noble Truths. Each of the Four Noble Truths is a condition that gives rise to the next. And the final consequence of all this is what is called awakening. But I'm going to tease that out in far more detail, I hope, this afternoon. But let us conclude just with a reading of the text itself. This is what I heard. He was staying at Baranasi in the deer park at Isipatana. He, dressed the, the, he addressed the group of five. One gone forth does not pursue two dead ends. Which two? Infatuation, which is vulgar, uncivilized, and meaningless. And mortification, which is painful, uncivilized, and meaningless. I have awoken to a middle path that does not lead to dead ends. It is a path that generates vision and awareness, 
it leads to tranquility, insight, awakening and release. It has eight branches, appropriate seeing, thinking, talking, acting, working, trying, recollecting or being mindful and concentration. This is suffering. Birth is painful, aging is painful, sickness is painful, death is painful. Encountering what is not dear is painful. Separation from what is dear is painful. Not getting what one wants is painful. This psychophysical condition, the five aggregates, is painful. This is craving. It is repetitive. It wallows in attachment and greed, obsessively indulging in this and that, craving for stimulation, craving for existence, craving for non-existence. This is cessation, the traceless fading away and cessation of that craving, the letting go and abandoning of it, freedom and independence from it. And this is the path, the path with eight branches, appropriate seeing, thinking, talking, acting, working, trying, recollecting, concentrating. Such is suffering. It can be fully known. It has been fully known. Such is craving. It can be let go of. It has been let go of. Such is cessation. It can be experienced. It has been experienced. Such is the path. It can be cultivated. It has been cultivated. There arose in me illumination about things previously unknown. As long as my knowledge and vision was not entirely clear about the twelve aspects of these four noble truths, I did not claim to have had a peerless awakening in this world with its humans and celestials, its gods and devils, its ascetics and priests. Only when my knowledge and vision was clear in all these ways did I claim to have had such awakening. The freedom of my mind is unshakable. There will be no more repetitive existence. This is what he said. Inspired, the five delighted in his words. And while he was speaking, the dispassionate, stainless, Dhamma I arose in Kondanya, who said, Whatever arises is something that ceases. That's the first sermon. Now, let's just go back to comment on just one of the terms at the beginning. He talks about. Uh, one gone forth does not pursue two dead ends. This is often translated as extremes. Two extremes. But the word in Pali is anta, which, means some, which literally means an end. We have this word Vedanta, means the end of the Vedas, the culmination of the Vedas. 
But the Buddha also uses this word anta in the compound antaka, which is a synonym for mara. Mara means the one who imposes ends or limits or um, uh, borders. It it confines you. It, It sort of keeps you stuck. It doesn't go anywhere. And there are two of these dead ends. Infatuation, in other words, indulgence, uh, pursuit of superficial pleasure, uh, chasing after the chimera of um, temporary satisfactions. And self-mortification, or simply mortification, which is basically self-punishment. The opposite of pursuit of pleasure is somehow the um, indulgence in pain. And both of these the Buddha describes as gamma in Pali. And gamma means village. Both these dead ends are said to be village-like, hick-like. <laughs> Which is again, I think, a, a, a reference to how he sees his teaching as something that is not tied to the pattern of agrarian life. Now I know for many of us today, we have a rather romantic idea about village life and we are thoroughly disillusioned with the blight of urbanity and cities and inner cities and all of the crime and everything that they seem to produce and how much they are responsible for the pollution of the natural world and so on. That's entirely legitimate. But we have to recognize that the Buddha's teaching is not, uh, is not referring to cities like Los Angeles or Buenos Aires. It's referring to the beginnings of urban settlements that would nowadays be considered you know, the best, a sort of small town uh, surrounded by rural um, life. Very, so we must be careful not to project our own um, biases on cities and so on and our romance of the countryside onto this. So um, an, an interesting parallel with this is also the, this is what the word pagan means. It comes from the Latin paganus, which means a villager. And you find in the, both in the Hellenic world and in, of course, early Christianity, uh, this attempt to differentiate this life of the mind um, from uh, as, being, as not being pagan. Again, pagan is now sounds rather cool and sexy. But <laughs> it, it has the same uh, meaning as this word gamma. Uh, this world that, that uh, in those days was seen as a kind of a, a place where your life couldn't really flourish. The, the, what the Buddha is, is, is presenting is, in the Eightfold Path, is a life that can flourish in all of its areas. And again, I think it's very, very important to recognize that the path he taught wasn't just the path of spiritual accomplishment, but it was a path that embraced every aspect of one's humanity. The way you see the world, the way you think about it, the way you're motivated to act morally or immorally, and how that affects what you say, what you do, how that is foundational for how you make use of resources that you provide for those who are dependent on you, in other words, your livelihood, which creates the ethical framework which is founded through relationships, 
speaking, acting, working, these are relational activities that provide the foundation for applying yourself, for focusing your attention on what you might consider matters the most in terms of realizing the value of your life. And in a Buddhist culture, this has to do with the cultivation of the mind, mindfulness and concentration. And that is really only possible when you have certain, you have a free time, when you have um, access to information, when you have a rich enough community of people which has people who are, as it were, full-time professionals in this, the early Buddhist Sangha, for example. And that requires the support of um, um, urban environments that provide security and wealth. We can't separate all of these things. It's important to recognize, and any of you who've been to the places where the Buddha taught in India, his main centers were not built out in the rural countryside where you could be nice and quiet, but they were built in close proximities to the biggest cities of the day. The, the, the Jetavan, the, the, the bamboo grove, was right, right outside the city walls of Rajgir. And the Jetas grove was about maybe a quarter of a mile outside the city walls of Shravasti or Savati. These were his main bases, urban places. And the sponsors, the people who funded this, were the bankers, were the merchants, the newly emerging middle class who were able to engage in commerce, in other words, trade, which was enabled because there was surplus products and more and more luxury goods, uh, the minting of money, that was all made possible by the transformation of the economic conditions of his time. Um, and I feel it's very uh, crucial to understand these texts, to locate them within the context of the period. So... I'm going to stop here, um, and then this afternoon we'll go into the truths themselves, and specifically the um, injunctions or the tasks that each truth, um, uh, in a sense, calls for to be realized in such a way that we can begin to understand what it means to be fully awake.